Church, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we are in chapter 17. We're going to start at 17, verse 20, and read quite a ways. Uh, this, you know, if you're used to life around here, that this won't feel too weird. But uh, as we've been studying Luke uh, this time, I have been noticing that Luke groups things together uh, with, you know, scenes. So there's this one scene where there's all this talking that happens, all this particularly teaching from Jesus, that ordinarily we split up. We, we divide them out because there's some, some great parables that are really meaningful in and of themselves. And so we focus on those ordinarily, and, and that's fine. That's a fine way to do it. But when you look at it in the big picture, you start to realize that there's a little bit more to what Jesus is saying. So we're going to start in Luke 17, verse 20, and we're going to read through to 18, verse 14. So Jesus is going to answer a few questions to the Pharisees about the kingdom. And then as he gets into that teaching, he's going to finish with two parables that uh, explain a little bit more of what he's trying to say. So I'll connect the dots, hopefully, in a few minutes here. So let's take a breath and settle ourselves to hear the reading of the word. Now at one point, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. So he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Then people will say to you, look, there he is, or, or look, here he is. Do not go out or chase after them. For just like the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, right up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone who is on the roof with his goods in the house must not come down and take them away. And likewise, the person in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two people in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Then the disciples said to him, Where, Lord? And he replied to them, Where the dead body is, there the vultures will gather. Then Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. 
For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice, or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The tax collector, however, stood far off and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, we are listening for your voice. Would you speak to us about your word? Lord, just as in the days of the prophet Samuel, when your people say, speak, your servants are listening, you are faithful to speak. Lord, you speak to us through your word. You speak to us by your spirit. You speak to us through your people. Lord, would you open our ears, open our hearts, that we could be constantly tuned to you, listening to your voice. Thank you for what you've spoken to us in your word, and now help us to understand it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus first spent some time wandering around uh, really his, the area where he grew up, the area where he had lived for a number of years, Galilee, that's up in the north. And then he sets his face southward and starts walking very slowly towards Jerusalem. And all along, he's been teaching and, and suggesting and, and demonstrating that he is the king. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. And he, uh, he uses terms like the Son of Man. He used it a bunch in this passage. Maybe you heard it. And these are all terms that make the Jewish people say, it's happening. God is doing this. And as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, the anticipation seems to be growing that, that the big things that we've been waiting for are coming to pass. And so it is natural, it makes sense, 
that the, the religious experts, those guys who are studying and waiting and teaching the people, you know, the, the Pharisees, you know, they're, of course, you know, they've, they've been uh, Jesus' adversary uh, in all throughout the Gospel of Luke, but, but they are focused on when is God going to do this thing that he's promised he would do. And so it makes sense that they would ask him as he gets closer to Jerusalem, when's it going to happen? When is the kingdom going to come? It, it makes sense that kingdom questions would start to rise because as Jesus walks along, they're walking past Roman checkpoints. I mean, they are under the thumb of Rome. And so the people are wondering, how are you going to do it? When is this going to come together? So this passage is all about questions about the kingdom. Questions about the kingdom. The, the Pharisees ask the question, when? And based on Jesus' answer, he first answers to them, and then he talks to the disciples for a while, and, and he ends up saying this kind of mysterious thing like, you know, there will be two people in a place, and one will be taken, and the other left. And he says that a couple times. So the disciples, they have another kingdom question. Well, specifically, like, where, where are they going to be taken? What, what are you talking about? So when is the kingdom coming? Where are these things going to happen? Jesus gives his answers to this. But I think for us, when I think about how we engage questions about the kingdom, we have to start with the question of what? Like, what are we even talking about here? How do we wrap our minds around the kingdom and what it is. So when, where, and what. So here, here is Jesus' answer to the questions. In this passage, the kingdom is already here, soon to be not yet here, but don't worry, it'll be hard to miss. Oh, and be careful, because it'll be easy to miss. It's already here, not yet here, hard to miss, easy to miss. And then he gives some advice about how not to miss it. That's, that's our passage. Already here, not yet here, hard to miss, easy to miss. What do I mean when I say already here? The Pharisees ask, when are these things going to happen? When is the kingdom going to come? They are asking, as I've already said, when are you going to overthrow Rome? When will all of the promises that were made to our prophets come to pass. Like, they hear Jesus using language about being the son of man, and that brings their minds back to the dreams of the prophet Daniel, who, who saw all of these empires represented by these scary monsters, and one after the other after the other, and finally the fiercest, scariest one takes over everything, and then Daniel sees one like a son of man who's seated next to the Most High, next to the Ancient of Days. And as that one takes his throne, the last worst beast is thrown, you know, overthrown. He's conquered. And, and the chosen people, they experience glory. I mean, they, they become the dominant kingdom on earth and all of the other kingdoms that used to exist are now subsumed underneath that kingdom. And so, of course, after generations of waiting, if a guy is coming and he's working miracles every day and he's teaching and he's drawing a big crowd, of course, there's the question is, well, when? When are you going to do it? And Jesus' answer is, 
Guys, the kingdom is in your midst. Now, the Greek for that answer is a weird grammar. Even, you know, other languages, you know, you know things get mixed around normally, but, but it's weird grammar for even Greek because what Jesus really says, the order of the words is, the kingdom among y'all is. I have to say y'all because it's a plural you. All right, among y'all is. And he's emphasizing is. Like the way he says it is the is is underlined and highlighted. It has a star. Among you is. He is saying the kingdom is under your noses, guys. It's here. Now, what that means that the kingdom, this gets to our what question, is something very different than what the Pharisees think it's going to be. They think it means a military political victory, and then the government and military and people of Israel will sort of be the rulers of the rest of the world, and they're, they're excited for that. You know, that sounds pretty good to them after being underneath empires for a long time. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got it all wrong. It, it, it's not so much that the kingdom is a, a, a big victory, but the kingdom is initially a person. It is embodied in him. Jesus is telling us something very new about the kingdom, that the kingdom is where he is. The kingdom is a system of leadership. It is Jesus's rule and reign. And and it doesn't just affect politics and militaries and all of those things. It affects everything. It affects relationships. It, 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 it recognizes that the problems go much deeper than politics. They go much deeper than, than which nation is in charge. The problems go all the way into our hearts. And Jesus is setting those things straight. The kingdom among you is. It's already here because he is here. It's like a seed that's already been planted in the ground. But here's the problem when a seed is already planted in the ground. For a long time, you don't see anything. So the kingdom is already here, but it's soon to be not yet here. In fact, after he says this thing to the Pharisees about among you is, he turns to his disciples and he starts to do some other teaching. And he starts talking to them about, you know, there's, there are days that are coming when you will long to see the day of the Son of Man. You will miss these days. You'll miss what it's like being with me in person. Days are coming when you will long to see the day. He's saying that soon, you know, in this scene, if we can put ourselves standing right there, he's saying soon it's, it's going to be not yet here. It's already here, but it's also going to be not yet here. And he talks about a departure. He talks about, you know, first the Son of Man must go and be rejected and suffer in Jerusalem. There's something that, about it that's strange. So it's going to be not yet here soon. And of course, this is why for us, questions about the kingdom feel like we're talking about life on Mars. Right? I mean... We, we, aren't, we don't even have the experience of the Jewish people where we're, you know, we're under the thumb of some dictatorship. We're under the thumb of some empire. We're not colonized by anyone. 
you know, at, at this point. We, we enjoy uh, freedom. We enjoy, you know, what the being part of this long, powerful empire. This, you know, we're kind of in the, in the safe womb of this thing. We don't really know what it feels like to be longing for something to come and fix it. You know, whatever your political opinions are, maybe you're surely longing for something different in many different ways. But, friends, we, we don't feel that angst. And, you know, if you read the New Testament for the first time and you didn't have any baggage, you didn't have anything that you were bringing into it, you had never heard about it, and you just read the four Gospels and then all of the letters, you know, and the, the book of Acts, you would come away from it saying, these people were utterly convinced that any minute, even as they weren't even sure they were going to finish the letter they were writing, they were convinced that so soon, any minute, Jesus was going to return. They were so anxious for it. They anticipated it. I mean, just, you know, like they wouldn't even, sometimes Paul wouldn't talk about people dying. He would say they've just fallen asleep, but some of us are still going to be awake when it happens. You know, there was this expectation, anticipation that it was coming any moment. But here we are, we're in a very different situation because not just years, not just decades, not just centuries, but millennia have passed. Millennia. And we're waiting. And so we are in this stage, not yet here. And we are waiting and wondering. And therefore, the questions about how it's all going to play out when somebody raises them, you know, when I was in, I don't know, when I was in middle school is when like the left behind books started coming out, you know. And the, so every, you know, every once in a while someone popularizes some idea about how it's all going to happen and, and a lot of people start talking about it again and, you know, and, and then big things happen, you know, geopolitically. Like Israel is at war right now. So, of course, there's all sorts of people saying, this is it. There's, this is the sign. This is, you know, the end is near. They're, they expect that because of these things that are happening in the world, it means it must be coming. But then we sort of settle back out. You know, those things come and then they go. We settle back out. And, and the truth is, um, over the history of Christianity, we've made a lot of guesses <laughs> about it. And frankly, guys, those are the acne on the face of Christianity. <laughs> they are. It's in, you know, I mean, it happens. You know, someone does a big thing. They make a big statement. And it's like, you know, then the day comes and goes. And we're like, yeah, we're still here. You know, <laughs> uh, that's embarrassing. Um, so Jesus said, okay, it's going to be not yet here. But so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the tension of it being already here? Jesus came, he, he, he died, he rose again, the, the king is on his throne, and yet we're still waiting. How do we deal with that? You know, maybe we're going to miss it. Well, he says, don't worry. It's going to be hard to miss. Hard to miss. He gives some simple illustrations, you know, with, before you like dig too much into these illustrations, you can just take them at, on face value, he says, you know, when you're like outside, it's a dark night and there's the, cr not just a little lightning flash, but the crazy one that lights up the entire sky that for a second you think it is high noon. You know, it's so bright. You know that and nobody misses it. Even if you have your eyes closed, you can't miss it. It's, it's going to be that obvious. 
Or, or, or let me say it another way. You know how, um, like, once Noah was in his boat and it was raining really hard and the waters were rising, no one, no one was confused about what was happening. I mean, the, like, disaster was upon them. It's going to be that obvious. You know, when Lot left the city of Sodom and they were fleeing, this is in the book of Genesis, and, and the, you know, sulfur, fire rain is falling, and, you know, there's no mystery. The town was being destroyed. It's going to be that obvious. You know how when you see a, a pack of vultures swirling around in a little huddle, you know, we don't live in vulture country, um, but you've seen movies. <laughs> uh, you know what that means. They found a dead thing, and they're eating it. It's going to be that obvious. He gives example after example after example, saying it's, good, it, it's, it's going to be hard to miss. In other words, you can set aside your charts and your timelines. You know, I, don't, I, I don't know anyone here who's really obsessed with those things, so... I'm not really preaching to anyone right now, but, but Jesus, he, he tells us we can relax about trying to figure out the timing and what means what. We can relax about that because it will be obvious, but it will also be easy to miss. Now, this is interesting. In the middle of those stories about Noah and the flood and Lot and the fire, uh, he says this thing like, he, he doesn't talk about what Genesis talks about with those stories. In those stories, when before the flood happens in Genesis, Genesis is detailed about how corrupt the people of earth had become. Violent, just bloodthirsty. It was dangerous. It was just people turned in on each other, and, and the flood was just letting that chaos sort of take over, so to speak. And then in the city of Sodom, you know, there's this whole thing where Abraham or God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy the city. And Abraham says, please just check it out. You know, if, the, if you find even, you know, 50, 40, 30, 20, even 10 people who are righteous, will you save the city? And, and so God sends angels to the city and, and they only find one. They only find Lot. And he's really not even that righteous if you look at the stories and so Lot's told to flee, and it happens. So Genesis talks about the wickedness. Jesus doesn't talk about those things. Jesus talks about everyday life. He says, you know, in the days of Noah, people were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. That's an everyday, normal life. You know, in the days of, in, in the days of Lot, you know what people were doing? They're eating, drinking, they're buying, they're selling, they're, they're, they're farming, they're involved in everyday life. And then, boom, the disaster came upon them. He says it will be easy to miss even Lot's wife. He says, remember Lot's wife because she turned back and then she was destroyed as well. These are scary, these are scary gory stories. And Jesus' point is, if we try to hold on to our life, we will lose it. In other words, if we cling to the stuff of this earth, you know, he tells, if you're up on a roof and you see it happening, don't go back down and gather, you know, pack your bags. You just got to go. If you're out in the field, don't go, don't come back to try to rally people. You just got to go. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. It, it, it will be easy to miss if, 
we are fixated and focused on the stuff of this earth. If we're, if we're taken up in it, it will be easy to miss. So it'll be hard to miss. It'll be easy to miss. Okay, we've covered about half the passage. What does Jesus do after this? First of all, his disciples ask this question. You know, okay, two people here, one taken, one left. Uh, where, what, where are you taking them? What's happening? And he tells them this statement about uh, first the, the vultures and the carcass, and we'll come back to that. And then he says, Let, instead, let's talk about, let's tell some stories. Let me help you understand how you could be in a mindset, how you could be ready not to miss it. So the first story he tells is the story of the what we call the persistent widow. You know, this it's this kind of terrible story where there's this woman who's she's kind of under the boot of society. She she is not someone who has a lot of rights. If if you are a widow, you are a, a um, ready to be victimized in many different ways. She is just by virtue of who she is, she is at risk of injustice every day. She probably has people taking advantage of her and abusing her in many different ways. And so she is going, the only judge in town is totally corrupt. She knows he doesn't care about her. She knows he doesn't care about God. And yet that's her only option. And so she begs again and again, give me justice. Please give me justice. And you heard the story. The judge finally says, I don't really care about her or God or truth or whatever, but she is wearing me down, man. So, fine, you win your case. He gives her justice. And then Jesus says, how much more? If an unrighteous judge would be worn down by the persistent cries of someone he doesn't care about, would the righteous king of kings respond to the persistent cries of his people for justice. So the first way that we put ourselves in position not to miss it is to be dissatisfied in a, in a holy way, in a godly way, dissatisfied with the world as it is. This woman is crying out for justice. Make things right. They're not right and you've got to make them right. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, see, it's a reference back to the return, to the kingdom. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that faith looks like this woman, looks like someone who is dissatisfied with the world. So, so what do we do? Do we complain on Facebook? No. <laughs> I thought I'd set you guys up for that. No. <laughs> okay. Friends, this is not a matter of trying to stir up agitation and dissatisfaction. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I am actually trying to invite you to draw near to the king and see the goodness of his rule and reign, how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how loving he is, how just he is. Draw near to him, draw near to his kingdom, and then long for it to spread in the earth. The prayer that he teaches us to pray is a prayer of dissatisfaction with the way things are. Let your kingdom come. 
and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer of dissatisfaction. All right. So the woman teaches us to be dissatisfied. And the, the, the more time we spend with Jesus, the more constantly we long for it. And so we become the persistent widow. She is the, she's the hero of this story. So a widow's the hero of the first story. Who's the hero of the second story he tells? A tax collector. The first way we get ourselves ready is we become dissatisfied with this world. We aren't clinging to our stuff. We aren't clinging to our jobs. We aren't clinging to the things that we've earned. We're ready to let those things go for the sake of Christ. We're dissatisfied with the world. The second way is like this tax collector. It's such this story. I mean, this story is... It is, for me, perhaps the prime parable on what it means to truly have faith in Jesus. The story teaches us to be dissatisfied with ourselves. Dissatisfied with the world, with the widow, the tax collector is dissatisfied with himself. We see this Pharisee, and he is bad even for Pharisee standards. There's no one who would be listening to this story who would think, oh yeah, that's a good way to pray. None of the Pharisees would be like, in fact, they'd all be like, dude, we don't, we don't pray like that. We at least pretend to be humble. Oh my gosh. Well, how, how could you be saying that? But he, of course, he's making this dramatic contrast between these two guys. And this Pharisee, he is a disciplined guy. I mean, yeah, he's not an extortionist or a, a, a tax collector or an adulterer, but he also fasts twice a week, give, gives a tenth of everything he gets. I mean, he is doing the disciplines. Get, fasting and giving, friends, are disciplines of dependence. Isn't that interesting? When we give financially, that is a way we are teaching our bodies, our souls, our desires that I trust God for what I need. Giving is a discipline of dependence. Fasting is a time where you say, you know, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting is a discipline that teaches us dependence. And this Pharisee, he is doing the right stuff, but he's making the wrong conclusions from it. He's saying, see, I am so good at being spiritual that I have earned righteousness. That's what he's saying. On the other hand, we have this guy standing off in the shadows, not even willing to look up to heaven, beating his chest, saying, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Friends, I am not inviting you to a false humility. I'm not inviting you to say the right stuff, have mer- you know, to, to put on... At- you know, ashes and sackcloth and, and go about in mourning, you know, but so that you can be proud of how humble you are. I am asking you again to draw near to the king. Because it, it, as we see in the scriptures, when people come into the presence of the king, like the prophet Isaiah, they fall on their face. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. When, when, they, when they realize who they're with, they're like Peter in the boat, Jesus catches all the fish. Peter realizes who's there and he says, you got to get away from me. I'm a sinner. Like the only way I can survive in your presence is mercy. Friends, isn't this amazing? One prayer is for justice and the other prayer is for mercy. 
Those two things are actually contradictory, and that's where we live. We live in the tension already, not yet, easy to, hard to miss, easy to miss, justice, mercy. We long for it all. That's the nature of the kingdom. That's where it starts to shake us loose of the kingdom, kingdoms of this earth and see him. So Jesus says it'll be hard to miss, like the flood, like the fire, like a carcass. What does he draw our attention to? After telling these stories about Noah and these stories about Lot, Jesus says, actually what you need to look for, guys, is one body. One body. I think what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you'll see a flood. You'll see a fire. They're going to fall on my head when we get to Jerusalem. I'm going to take all of that destruction upon myself. Look for the body. And you'll be near the kingdom. That's what we do when we come to the table. I mean, we're talking about Jesus' body and blood when we come to the table. We look for the body. We look for the one who took it upon himself. This is where we find our dissatisfaction with the world, our dissatisfaction with ourselves, where we find it all falls into place. Because our king is not a king who reigns through military conquest or political might or clever advertising. He doesn't do any of that. He has victory through his death. He is the king who suffers for his enemies. And that's the kingdom that we are begging, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your people be in that heart and in that spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm asking in Jesus' name right now that you would cause your people, cause me, to long for the kingdom the way that widow longed for justice, the way that tax collector longed for mercy, or the way the Pharisees longed for the vindication of the people of Israel. We, We long for your kingdom with that same yearning. And yet I forget, Lord. It's easy for me to miss. I get caught up in my stuff. I get caught up in my little kingdoms, Lord. It's easy for me to miss. Have mercy, God. Have mercy on me. And have mercy on my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.